If you were to try and introduce someone, or even yourself, reintroduce yourself to Jesus for the first time, what book would you use? I, for one, would use the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. In fact, over the last few months, I've introduced three of my good friends to Jesus, perhaps for the first time, perhaps it was a reintroduction, but I used a short study called Christianity Explained. We have several of these in the Resource Center. I would commend this as a great resource to you to reintroduce yourself to Jesus or to, re- or to introduce someone for the first time to Jesus. As far as content goes, this Christianity Explained gives a very straightforward, basic introduction to who Jesus was, why he had to suffer and die, and what it means to begin to follow him. Again, we have several copies in the Resource Center, and I would commend that to you for purchase and for use in your own life. My name is Clint Moore. I'm the missions director here at Desert Springs. It's my privilege to be here to try and help, uh, put forth an effort to help you better understand the reading or listening to the book of Mark that you've been doing over this past week if you're trying to keep up with the 90 days of listening. And hopefully we can... Um, consolidate some, some good things that have been said about the book of Mark and uh, find out better who Jesus was and is. And I want to use this time to answer the following questions. You see them in your outline there. First, who wrote the gospel according to Mark? It may seem obvious at first, but may not be so obvious. Number two, when did he write it? Number three, who did he write it to? Number four, how did he write it? Number five, what did he write in it? And finally, and I think most importantly, why did he write it? Why did he write this book? What did he hope to accomplish by writing it? Before I dive into each of these questions, I just want you to know that others have done a better job, more thorough and helpful job of answering these questions. And that because of limited time, I'm going to synthesize a lot of this material so that you and I can just grab hold and uh, move forward in our reading and listening to God's word. So the first question, who wrote the gospel according to Mark? It's kind of a trick question. You may be thinking, well, of course, Mark did. And you're right. It is called the gospel according to Mark. In one sense, you're absolutely right. But as Christians, we do believe in the holy divine inspiration of Scripture. This word inspiration is a little tricky because it implies inhaling. But actually, we believe God breathed out Scripture. He exhaled Scripture. So we could say that God expired Scripture. He breathed out scripture. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. So Mark's account here is the word of God. It's divinely inspired or expired. And the Christian church recognizes this, that it is without error in everything that it affirms. But we do, we do believe in this dual authorship, right? We do believe that God used men to write the Bible. So what man did God use to pen the book of Mark? It may surprise you that the book itself doesn't actually say who wrote it. The phrase according to Mark was given to this uh, account of the gospel through the tradition of the early church, but it's clear that based on early church writings that everyone believed at the time, and we have no reason to doubt that this is indeed written by Mark. So after agreeing to the authorship of this gospel account by Mark, it should surprise us some that Mark was not actually an apostle. One of the 12 disciples that was called out and later appointed apostles by Jesus 
to speak the word of truth to the world. Because the early church almost exclusively attributed all of Scripture writings to the apostles. But this concern of ours can be quickly resolved if we realize that Mark was a close and consistent acquaintance with the apostle Peter. In fact, according to a second century church historian, Papias, he said that Mark, quote, accurately wrote all that Peter remembered of the things and of the things said and done by the Lord. Papias also said that Mark gave attention to leave out nothing of what he had heard from Peter and to make no false statements in his writings. This is cons- confirmed by Peter himself in 1 Peter 5.13 when he calls Mark my son, implying that he had either brought Mark to an understanding of the gospel and faith, or he had raised him up in the grace and knowledge of Christ and helped him grow in that as they ministered together. So really what qualifies Mark is not that he was an apostle because he was not an apostle, but his proximity to an apostle, namely to Peter. The bottom line is, Mark wrote this this account of Jesus' life. He was not an eyewitness to the events described, but he based his account on the eyewitness accounts and remembering and reteaching of these accounts by Peter himself. We should know that. We should be okay with that. And even more, we should be thankful for that. So the next question, when did Mark write this gospel account? Most scholars believe that the book of Mark was the first of the four Gospels written relative to Matthew and Luke and John. And the closest they can get to a date of its writing is the mid-50s A.D. to the mid-60s A.D. So, I don't know about you, but for me, another yellow flag pops up. How can a historical document that we see as reliable be reliable like we want it to be if it was recalled up to two or even three decades after the actual events? To our modern and postmodern minds... This may rub us the wrong way, but consider the following. When I, when I was eight or nine years old, I, I was taken to Los Angeles with my family to watch my first live NBA basketball game, and our family loves the Lakers. And we were watching them play the Seattle Supersonics in the Great Western Forum. And the Supersonics had this young rookie named Sean Kemp who was a bad mamma jamma. And by bad mamma jamma, I mean bad mamma jammer. He could dunk like no one before him could. He would do dunks in games that other guys just did in practice for fun. And he stole the ball and was in the open court all by himself, and all the Laker fans were secretly excited to see what was about to happen. And he goes up for this crazy windmill dunk, brings the ball way down low, and then way up high. It hits the back of the rim and goes all the way back to the other end of the court. The Lakers snatch it up, score with their own dunk, and the place goes crazy. That was 20 years ago, and I can recall it like it just happened. Why? Because it was so important to me at the time, and so critical for me at the time that this happened, and so catastrophically amazing, right? Can you remember something that was 20 years ago, or 30, or 40, or 50? I bet people in here can remember things that happened 50 years ago easily because of the importance. You would if your mother was healed from a serious fever. You would if a dead person was brought back to life. You would if the storm and the waves went silent with words. You would 
if something was so extraordinary and so supernatural and so catastrophically important that you could not forget it. I can just see Peter recalling these things to Mark and others over and over for two or three decades. It'd be easy for him to recall this to Mark and Mark say, I better get this down. So to think that Peter could not recall these events with incredible accuracy ignores the significance and the extraordinary nature of the events that he saw. It also um, ignores... Even more importantly, the fact that Jesus himself promised that God would send the Holy Spirit to the apostles so that they could recall all that he did, his words and his deeds. In John 14, 26, we see this. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus repeats this in John 16, 3, saying to the 12 again, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. So we have the promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit will do it, will help them remember. And this should give us confidence that God is indeed behind the accurate retelling of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus through Peter and through Mark. So this next question, number three, who did Mark write this account to? If you're thinking in your mind, well, he wrote it to me then you're partly right. In fact, the whole Bible is the whole counsel of God for the whole people of God. But as is the case with any ancient document, and really any document, it's critical to know who the original audience was if we have any hope to understanding the meaning of the text. So here again, we rely on scholars' analysis of the text, and from the grammar and from the content, we see that it is most Likely that he's writing to a Roman audience. This makes sense because Peter, when he wrote Second Peter, wrote it from Rome and said, My son Mark and the faith is with me. Imagine living in the most powerful emperor in, or empire in all the world with the most powerful emperor in all the world over you. And imagine being raised to believe that there are endless number of gods that you can bow down to and worship and the temptation to bow down to these gods and more specifically to the divine emperor Caesar. For the Romans, this temptation was not merely cultural temptation. It was a very real spiritual and social and even physical expectation. Because at this time in the 50s and 60s, when we think Mark wrote it, if you didn't worship Rome, you died. Christians were being killed for fun in Rome if they would not bow down to Caesar. So the claim that Jesus was the one and only God, this flew in the face His exclusive ability to save flew in the face of the pagan pluralism of ancient Rome. And in the immediate sense, this is who Mark was writing to. He wrote to believers that feared for their life, and he wrote to non-believers who were curious about the identity of this man that people were willing to die for because they said that he died for them. So the people of Rome were Mark's primary audience, but... We know that as the secondary audience to this book, we have plenty of false gods that we are tempted to bow down to, not the least of which is our comfort, our security, our control over our own lives, or even, if we really are honest with ourselves, ourselves. In the days of Mark, when he wrote this account, people didn't have to worship Caesar alone, but you did have to worship Caesar. And if you didn't, You died. And when Caesar was born, there was always a declaration of good news. A new Caesar has been born. 
And Mark declares to believers in Rome and to non-believers in Rome against this usual decree that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So for the Romans, this was a radical claim. And for us, this should feel and it should be radical. Number four, how did Mark write his account? As I've said, Mark wrote the bulk, if not all of his account, based on the recollection and reteaching that he heard on a consistent basis from the Apostle Peter. We see a mini version of the entire book of Mark in Acts chapter 10. If you'll look there with me. It's a mini version of Mark's account. Peter has seen a vision and been told by a voice to basically go and speak the gospel to non-Jews. Specifically, uh, an Italian uh, or Roman man named Cornelius. If you look at verse 37, we basically see a super short version of the book of Mark. An outline, if you will. You can understand how Mark got this from Peter. Preaching to Cornelius, Peter says, verse 37, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear. So we see God anointing him. Him doing good and healing. We saw all that he did, Peter says. They killed him and he came back. A very good outline of the entire book of Mark. You probably noticed when you're reading or listening through Mark this past week. He's much more action oriented than, and, and rapid paced than, than the other gospel accounts. He uses the term immediately 35 times as he transitions from vivid scene to vivid scene. He's not as uh, concerned with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament as, say, Matthew is, or the philosophical underpinnings as, say, John will be when he writes his. Rather, Mark hones in to deliver the essential framework, the structure of the life and ministry and the death of Jesus. Because Mark received this from Peter, he organized his account not based on chronology, as you would expect, but on topic. And because of this, we should be okay with, when we look at Matthew and Mark and Luke compared, and Mark gets things a little out of order. It should be okay because he's organizing things more topically as he received them from Peter. In fact, because we are getting this from Peter through Mark, this means that we're getting certain pieces of Peter's personal reflection, which he judged to be the most valuable And Mark judged the best also to include in the narrative reteaching of Jesus. Therefore, from this, we should assume that these are very significant recollections that Peter had. Since Peter had presumably two or three decades to consider what he had heard from Jesus and ponder the events and the teachings. As I just mentioned, Mark does not go out of his way to connect Jesus to the Old Testament. Yes, he does quote Isaiah and uses some of the imagery from the Old Testament, but since his audience is most likely Roman, Christian, and non, he relies much more heavily on the actions and words of Jesus himself to establish his legitimacy and his power and his identity as the Son of God. 
Mark is also not as hard on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as, say, Matthew was, as Ron pointed out last week from Matthew 23. But Mark is extremely hard on the disciples. He portrays them as cowardly, spiritually blind, and hard of heart. It should even further confirm to us that Peter's got to be behind this because a guy like Mark, who wasn't an apostle, can't really talk as bluntly about the apostles with such graphic and demeaning language. So we should be encouraged that this is coming from Peter. So far, we've decided who wrote the book of Mark, when he wrote it, who he wrote it to, and just a bit about uh, how he put it together. Next, let's talk about what Mark wrote in this account. Content-wise, the thing that makes the book of Mark unique is that it actually isn't very unique. Only 3% of the material we find in Mark is unique to Mark. All the rest of it is repeated in one form or another in the books of Matthew and the book of Luke. So I do want to give you a quick overview, expanding just a bit on what we saw from Peter in Acts chapter 10. In in chapters 1 through 8, after Jesus is clearly identified as the Son of God by God himself at his baptism, we see a mix of awe-inspiring supernatural miracles that begin to establish for the disciples and the crowds and even the Jewish leaders who this man is and what kind of authority he carries. But in the background, even as the crowds and the disciples are in awe and wonder and confusion, you see the opposition to Jesus building and lingering in that background. Mark uses the end of chapter 8 through the end of chapter 10 to describe a a three times three cycle of teaching. First, he would foretell of his suffering and his death and his resurrection as the very goal for which he came to this earth. Next, the disciples would misunderstand the teaching and even oppose it sometimes. But Jesus would use this as an opportunity to show them the true nature of the kingdom and what it will cost to follow him. Finally, in chapters 11 through 16, after the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, when everyone is for him, the miracles and the teachings fade to the background as the opposition to Jesus comes to the foreground. And this leads to his arrest, his torture, and his brutal crucifixion. And these were based on his claim, his self-claim to be God's Messiah, the anointed Savior sent from God to save men. So to review, Mark wrote this account in a more topical fashion based on the memory of Peter the the Apostle. We know that he most likely wrote it to a Roman audience, both Christian and non, and eventually to us in our culture, both Christian and non, during most likely the 50s and 60s AD. And now we know too that roughly the events that Mark recorded in his account, as we just saw. Now, By answering these first five questions, all we've really done is establish some context. And based on that context, we can ask the most important question that we should always be asking ourselves as we read books of the Bible. Why did this person write this gospel? Why did Mark write this account of the gospel? Well, first, I think Mark wrote this account of the gospel simply to record the teachings of Peter about Jesus. Under intense persecution, under Nero and other evil emperors of the day, the apostles were disappearing one after the other. And if the church of Jesus was to have a recording of who their leader was and who their savior was and who their God was in the flesh, 
Mark was seeing apostles go and said, I better get busy writing. This is absolutely critical. We see in 1 Peter 1.18, Peter speaking of the transfiguration that he saw standing on the mountain. And he says to the folks he's writing 1 Peter 2, he says, we ourselves, in chapter 1 verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever produced for, was, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this book that you have in your hand, this holy Bible, and specifically this account of Jesus' life and then the teachings from the apostles that came after, Peter says, this is better than even being there for the transfiguration. I, for one, am really thankful that Mark wrote down this account for us. Aren't you thankful that Mark wrote down this account for you? So Mark wrote it down to record the teachings of Peter. He also wrote this down to evangelize non-believers and to equip Christians for evangelism. The book of Mark arms Christians with the essentials of who Jesus is, why he had to die, and what it means to begin to follow him. Paul reflects this idea in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. He says, For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul had to receive it, and he had to speak it. We have to receive it. We have to speak it. Mark clearly felt the need to get this gospel, this good news, this delivery to you and to me of first importance. And now you and I receive it and pass it along with joy. This is also one reason we, I say we, uh, me as the missions director over local missions and then Tim Ragsdale as the elder over local missions, we've tried to integrate this Christianity Explained and we're trying to do it more and more as well as Christianity Explored. Of course, that's more small group based. This Christianity Explained is more one-on-one based. We want to integrate that more into our roles in serving you and equipping you and equipping ourselves to be faithful with the gospel. Both of these tools, Explained and Explored, are, are, are for evangelism, and they're based on the book of Mark. And I would say the book of Mark is, like I said earlier, a great way to introduce someone to the biblical Jesus for the first time. We will, Lord willing, be using it more and more here at the church to train you. So watch for those opportunities to, to be introduced to these materials. So Mark wrote his account to get a recording down, and he wrote it to equip the body of Christ for evangelism. And third, and finally, I would say even more importantly, which actually feeds these other two, he wrote this to answer these three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he have to suffer and die? And what does it mean to follow him? These three questions define this man, Jesus Christ. And Mark's central purpose seems to be to answer these questions. And if we can answer these three questions, then we can really see the true value of having a record in writing and in being equipped to go and tell people about 
Jesus. So, let's answer them. Who is Jesus? The answer, according to Mark, the suffering Son of God who came to die for sinners. Right out of the gates, Mark tells us that God declared Jesus' true identity at his baptism. God declares Jesus to be his son. He is my son in whom I am well pleased. And as if that was not enough, Mark then systematically establishes this over and over and what it means to be the son of God by showing his awesome authority with which Jesus operated on a daily basis. First, Jesus had a unique, a unique authority as a teacher. We see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. He says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In Jesus' day, it was rare to teach and not quote the man who taught you. And Jesus, no one spoke with this kind of authority. No one said, you have heard it say, but I tell you this. And as we saw there in verse 22, they were astonished by this authority. Jesus also exercised supernatural authority over evil spirits. In verse 23 of the same chapter, it says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In chapter 4, we see Jesus exercising supernatural authority over nature as well. As I mentioned earlier, stopping the storm and stopping the waves with only a few words. I once heard that a, a, a true sailor or naval uh, person heard this story, read this story, and thought, even if it was a coincidence that the storm finished about the time Jesus said these words, the waves would have actually gotten taller and more violent because the storm has a calming effect to the sea. So he, this sailor, and these fishermen that were with Jesus were in awe because the waves and the wind both stopped suddenly at the very words of Jesus. And it says in chapter 4, verse 41, that they were filled with great fear, saying to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey his word? So Jesus exercised supernatural authority as a teacher over evil spirits and over nature. He also exercised this supernatural authority over sickness and even death. First, he healed Peter's own mother who had a fever, and then he healed the woman who had been suffering for years. Verse 34 in chapter 1 says, He healed many who were sick with various Diseases. You can just see Peter watching this. And you can see him later recalling the story of the paralyzed man being lowered down through the roof and, and him saying it to Mark and Mark busily writing it down for the Romans and for us and for those who haven't yet heard about this awesome authority that Jesus has. After this, in chapter 5, Jesus brings a small girl back to life showing that death for him is merely sleep and that if he wills, he can wake up a person who is dead 
and bring them back to life. It's, no, it's worth noticing here, though, that um, after reading uh, Jesus healing, uh, reading about Jesus healing sicknesses and bringing people back to life, that everyone who was sick that he healed got sick again. Everyone that was dead and he raised back to life died again. So you can almost feel this longing in the people as they saw that and then saw Jesus die and then saw their relatives die or get sick again. What else can this man do that doesn't seem as temporal to me? What can he do beyond this life, beyond these dying bodies? The next two examples of Jesus' authority answers those questions. First, he, he claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, which essentially to the people around him meant, I am equal with God. I carry God's authority to forgive sins. This drew out real anger from his opposition, from the crowds and from his followers. And for us and folks we know, it should intrigue us to how exactly can a man have the power of God to forgive sins. In addition to the authority to forgive sins, it's clear that when Jesus commands someone to follow him, He's not joking, he's not asking, he's telling. And when we see him do this, especially with his closest followers, he told them to leave everything and they did immediately. This showed that Jesus didn't have just the the ability to forgive sins and the authority to, he had the authority over people and their wills and their lives. This should challenge us and everyone else in the world. No one wants to admit that there is someone out there that carries God's authority over us and that we must submit to wholly and completely. These last two examples of Jesus' authority, authority over people and authority over, uh, to be able to forgive sins, brings even more questions as we continue to dig into the book of Mark. How does he forgive sins? And what does it mean to follow him? And true to form, Mark does not leave these questions unanswered. How can he forgive sins? The answer is very straightforward. The only way sins can be forgiven is if, is if Christ offers himself up to the Father as a ransom. Mark 10, 45 is clear when Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was on a mission to restore the broken kingdom of God, but the judgment of God against sin was standing in the way of that restoration. And the only way God's wrath could be satisfied is if a pure, spotless, sinless lamb, man, was sacrificed for it. We see this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It was written 800 years before Jesus. And it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We are healed. So how can Jesus forgive sins? By suffering the torture and the death that you and I deserve as a ransom to God on our behalf. This ransom only applies to those who follow Jesus. So we return to that question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We don't, again, have to look very far in the book of Mark to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus Commands everywhere, everyone in every place of all time. In Mark 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Two things Jesus commands to everyone, everywhere, from all time. Repent and believe the gospel. 
let's talk about what it means to repent and believe the gospel. One thing that is, is, is mind and heart boggling about this concept of repent and believe is that both are talked about in scripture as a gift from God. I don't have time to work that out completely for you this morning, but here are a few places to go if you want to jot them down. Acts 5, 31. Acts 11, verse 17. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. And finally, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Just to give you a few places where this is taught in Scripture that repentance and belief are gifts from God. Have you ever wondered what this word repentance means? We hear it all the time. I've heard it all the time since I was young growing up in church. And really, not until recently have I really had a decent short phrase to say, what is repentance? Let me propose to you that it's three new attitudes. Your first new attitude is toward yourself. Die to your self-rule and your self-worship. We must realize that we are not worthy to be worshipped by ourselves or anyone else. We are not the king. We are not the center of the universe. We must have a new attitude toward ourselves. We must also have a new attitude toward sin. We must realize the catastrophic, infinite rebellion that we are a part of by birth and by choice as we've sinned against God. Mark 7 talks about this. Out of the heart, so out of our very being and who we are, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. Not just the acting out of these sins, but even the thought of these sins in our hearts and minds is an affront to God and His holiness. God's true purpose for our lives is namely to honor and enjoy and obey Him, but we have chosen to honor and obey and enjoy ourselves. We've abandoned His cause and taken up our own. And to repent means to recognize this rebellion in yourself and have a new attitude toward it, turning away from it with your heart and your mind and your soul. New attitude toward sin, new attitude toward self, also a new attitude toward God. The Bible is clear. Because the first man sinned, Adam, and because we followed in his footsteps, that his good and right judgment is ours, fully ours. And ultimately, we must recognize that he is the one true God and that as the judge, he is angry And that you and I and everyone in this world needs to be saved from that good and righteous anger of God. Collectively, this new attitude toward ourself, toward our sin, and toward God should bring us to a keen awareness of our need for someone to save us. But repentance and belief are the two sides of the same coin. You flip that coin, you have to believe. Like repentance, belief is a gift from God. It is trusting faith in the promise of God to save you by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That his life, death, and resurrection have indeed satisfied the requirements of the law and satisfied the requirements of God's judgment and punishment. Even though the disciples were portrayed by Mark as cowardly and spiritually blind and hard of heart, Peter does lead the confession, this glimmer of hope in Mark chapter 8 when he says, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Savior from God. And Jesus, knowing that if this got out too fast, uh, he would be dealt with, which he was later dealt with, he encouraged them to keep it, a, keep it silent for a season so that he could continue to teach them and correct them in their understanding of this. 
As believers, we must not think that belief is just a one-time event, that if we believe the gospel and then that's it, we can move on to more exciting and bigger and better things. We must battle unbelief in our own hearts because unbelief is our common enemy in the advancement of God's kingdom in our hearts and in the hearts of others. We must battle unbelief through evangelism, through preaching the gospel to others. We must battle unbelief through discipling one another by preaching the gospel to new believers and helping them understand what it means to apply that to their whole lives and follow after Jesus with their whole heart. We must battle unbelief by counseling one another with God's word, preaching the gospel to each other in all circumstances. We must battle unbelief, most of all, in our own hearts on a daily basis by preaching this good news to ourselves. To paraphrase Martin Luther, the man who started the Protestant Reformation, the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. And I would add, the whole of the Christian life is one of renewed belief in the gospel. This ongoing attitude of renewed repentance and belief leads to true following of Jesus. A fruit of true repentance and belief leads to true fruit of following Jesus. It's a result of of repentance and belief. And it was never what the disciples anticipated. Jesus told his followers, take up your cross and follow me. He told them and showed them that his kingdom was not about ruling it over others and making them serve him. But he said, I came not to serve, but, or not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. So he was encouraging and challenging his disciples That to follow him, they needed to be humble servants, expecting to suffer and even willing, if it came to it, to die for following him. What about when he says things like sell everything? He can't mean that every Christian of all time must sell everything that they have, like he said to the young rich man. But what it can mean to us is that we should find what we worship and love more than Jesus and forsake it. Forsake loving, not forsake it, but forsake loving it more than we love him. And even redeem it, purchase it back by Christ's blood to use it for God's glory. This can be for us, our time, our talent, and our treasure, just to name a few general categories about things in our lives we should be cautious of becoming more important than Jesus. This idea of repent, believe, and follow Jesus can be summarized from three T words that I get from Christianity Explained. First, turn. Turn away from self-worship and and sinful rebellion toward God. Second, trust in the complete ransom work of Jesus on the cross. Finally, travel. Begin to follow Jesus, getting to know him better and being ready and willing to suffer well for him and forsake our idols, and our hearts for him. Turn, trust, and travel. Oh, that God would grant us the gift of turning and trusting and traveling with him more and more. And oh, that God would grant us the um, motivation and the love for others and the love for him to challenge them to turn and trust and travel 